Business Power Hour. Yep, it's your invitation to join us for an hour of power. Tuesday, the 30th of November, the last day of November, 11 months of the year. Justin Rowe Roberts, it feels like 2021 has just flown. Been an ugly year for lots of people. Has it been a good one for you? Alec, it has indeed been a good year. It's been a busy year, 2021. Uh, with the Power Hour starting in March, it's been an unbelievable 10 months. The people that we've managed to chat to over the last 10 months and for them to shed insight, whether that be from a business or political perspective, it's been awesome. Um, sad that the year is drawing to a close. I've really enjoyed every single second, but looking forward to getting stuck in in January already. Of course, the December break's coming up now. I think everyone's looking forward to it, but 2022 and big things happening, and it's going to be an exciting period, not only in the markets, but also in the broader economic um, macro uh, conditions in South Africa. And Nadia Swat in our virtual studio, as always. I know you're not feeling great at the moment, but uh, how's 2021 been for you? It's been amazing. I feel I, I feel bad because the last two years have been of people's worst years, but they've honestly been two of my way best ones. I've had, yeah, lots of growth. It's been a pretty crummy year for most South Africans and a really, really awful quarter. Uh, the three months of the end of September, 660,000 formal jobs disappeared. And we really got to get our act together now. If the ANC is not seeing this, the ruling party in the country, if they're not seeing the the fallacy and the appalling consequences of their policies, which are just across the board, so idealistic, but destroying jobs, not allowing people to get into the workforce. It's just, uh, well, it's beyond me. At some point in time, something's got to give, and there's a really good interview coming up just after the FT's uh, insights, as per usual today, with Kevin Lings, who's the chief economist of Stanlip, and he unpacked for me the latest unemployment figures. Get this, if you are under the age of 35, the chances are of you having a job or one in four. There's a 77% youth unemployment rate in South Africa. Just horrific. Uh, of course, people are making do somehow. But if you're outside of the formal sector and you're not employed formally, which means you can't go and buy yourself a car, a house, or indeed pay tax or contribute to the tax base, you are really uh, staring at a very, very difficult life into the future. But we always have to look on the upside, and we certainly got the upside of a show today. Justin, you've been pretty busy. Let's start off with Corky Coyman. What can we hear? What can we expect to hear from him? Over the next couple of days and weeks, Alec, I'm getting some of South Africa's best asset managers, largely independent, and they're going to be sharing their views on their best stock pick for 2021, focusing on the JSE and focusing on large cap companies within the top 100. I think that's where most of the interest lies. Corky, obviously, being an oracle in the financial services industry, specifically the banks, focuses on the uh, big local banks. He chooses Capitech as his choice for 2022. He's very impressed with uh, Harry Faree and his team and what they've managed to achieve. He says that they've still got a lot of more market share to gain. They only hold about single-digit market share of the South African banking industry. And he says that Harry and his team have laid the platform um, for a good few years to come. Isn't that interesting? If you'd bought into Capitech, 
any time this year you'd have made money or pretty much any time this year. But some people look at it and say, but this, this stock is so expensive. And yet here you have our number one banking analyst and one of the best, very best in the world. He's won international awards saying that's the one to go for. Yes, you hear so many analysts talking about the valuation and how it's so expensive. But I think sometimes you have to take two steps back and just look at the quality of the company and look at what Harry and his team have been managing to do for over 20 years. And who's to say they can't do that over the next 20? And what about the Impala story? You've been following this from the outset. Uh, we had a bid by Impala to buy Royal Buffer King uh, platinum then royal buffer king platinum seemed like its board wanted to get together with northern but there's been a further development there yes so th- about a month ago impala went with a firm intention which got rejected northern platinum took a 33 percent stake or a third stake in the business from royal buffer king platinum's largest shareholders which are royal buffer king holdings so northern currently holds 33 percent of the company impala have come out they've gone to the largest asset managers that own royal buffer king which includes abax investments of which i spoke to their co-founder anthony sedgwick and um, other asset managers include the likes of Alan Gray um, and another a, a number of other large asset managers. I just can't get their names right now, but all the big ones, including 91. They've sold a 25% stake to Impala. Impala going over uh, to the rest of the shareholders and asking them to tender their shares. It is unlikely that Northern will tender their shares. So it looks like we're going to get an Impala and Northern jointly run Royal Buffer King Platinum going into the future. Isn't that an interesting story? Uh, Nadia, from your side, I know you've been busy on the video front uh, for BizNews. We had a couple of really interesting interviews yesterday, which seem to have been uh, much appreciated by the BizNews community. The interview with David Williams, uh, who wrote a 25-page piece for the Brenthurst Foundation on the parlor state of South Africa's railways. That was a little shocking. Not as shocking as the unemployment figures, but certainly uh, gives anybody who wants to see this country thrive uh, room for pause yeah no it's scary and even if you look at the comments on the youtube interview a lot of people there was a theme that they didn't know that this was so bad i mean they look at escom they think transnet all those things but they didn't know that this was yet, uh, yet another just dismal example of what's going on in the country now unfortunately if you neglect something for long enough eventually it's going to come back and haunt you well uh, we aren't going to be haunting you with the markets today stand by we'll be getting the latest in a moment right rock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different the daily movement in the markets means change for us all sometimes small sometimes big this daily market report is made just for you by bright rock the first ever needs matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Time for the news headlines now with Nadia Swart. Unemployment in South Africa continued to accelerate in the third quarter, reaching 34.9% up from 34.4% in the preceding three months, Statistician General Rusenga Maluluke said on Tuesday. Presenting the quarterly labor force survey for the third quarter in Irene Trane on Tuesday, Maluluke said the number of employed people fell by 660,000 in the three months to end September to 14.3 million, while the number of unemployed people decreased by 183,000 people to 7.6 million. South Africa's economy is dogged by high rates of inequality, poverty and unemployment, and the economy took a further battering from COVID-19, 
with about 1.4 million jobs lost in 2020, during which the economy contracted by 6.4%. Maluleke reported a net increase of 988,000 people in the not economically active population. Analysts warn that the latest fuel price hikes taking effect from Wednesday will have a dire impact on consumers. On Monday, Energy Minister Gwede Montashe announced that the motorists will be forking over an additional 81 cents per litre for petrol this week, taking the price to over 20 rand a litre. The AA has warned that the price hikes will have a knock-on effect across the supply chain and add inflationary pressure to the economy. Analysts have said that fuel price hikes this year have already pushed many consumers to the brink of their budgets, and the latest may push them over the edge. There have been calls for a full review of fuel prices in South Africa, including reducing taxes. And following reports that the government has finally decided to scrap e-tolls in Gauteng, Transport Minister Fakile Mbalula said in a statement that there was no such decision. Mbalula, who has been promising a resolution to the e-toll saga for years, said that Cabinet has not yet made any decision on e-tolls and that the decision isn't as simple as scrapping or not scrapping the system. He set yet another deadline saying that the National Treasury will have the final say and present these findings in the 2022 budget speech. Justin, back to you for the market report. Thanks, Nods. The JSE All Share Index was up at 70,200. In the currency markets, the rand was slightly stronger against all the major currencies to 16 rand 4 cents to the dollar, 20 rand rand 38 cents to the pound, and 18 rand 21 cents to the euro. Gold is flat, trading at $1,792 an ounce. A Kruger Rand will cost you around 30,000 Rand. Brent crude is lower, trading at $71.55 a barrel. And the premier cryptocurrency will put you back 930,000 Rand. In the financial news, Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey will step down from his role and Chief Technology Officer Parikh Agawal will become his successor. Dorsey's departure marks the end of his second CEO stint at the social networking site, and he leaves at a time when Twitter has made headlines for its renewed pace of product launches after years of criticism that the site had fallen behind larger rivals like Facebook and new social media apps such as TikTok Innovation. Despite the quickened pace of new features, shares of Twitter have slumped in recent months, adding pressure on Dorsey to end his unusual arrangement of being CEOs of two different large listed companies. This daily market report was made just for you by Brightrock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Today is Tuesday, November 30th, and this is your FT News Briefing. Jack Dorsey posted his final tweet as CEO of Twitter, and commodities giant Glencore is under pressure to get out of its dirtiest, but very profitable, thermal coal business. Plus, some say Pfizer has saved the world with its COVID vaccine. Our global pharmaceuticals correspondent, Hannah Kushler, talks about how it got there and the downside of Pfizer's dominance. Well, I think it puts them in a very powerful position over things that companies don't normally have power over. I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need. Glencore is under pressure to spin off its thermal coal business. Activist hedge fund Bluebell Capital Partners wrote to the mining and commodities trading company earlier this month in a letter seen by the FT, in which Bluebell urged Glencore to chart a future without the world's most polluting fossil fuel. Bluebell also urged the group to divest non-core assets and improve corporate governance. Glencore is the world's biggest exporter of thermal coal, which is burned in power stations, and its coal business is expected to make 
billions. Glencore does have a plan to close down its mines over the next 30 years, but Bluebell says the strategy is morally unacceptable and financially flawed. The hedge fund isn't big, but it's known to be shrewd. Its campaign at French food maker Danon led to the ousting of the company's CEO earlier this year. Jack Dorsey resigned as head of Twitter yesterday, 15 years after he co-founded it. The 45-year-old said he wants the company to move on from its founders. But when we look into the reporting a little bit more, one person familiar with the process said that this succession has been planned for more than a year. That's our technology reporter, Christina Criddle. So last year, activist hedge fund Elliott Management took a 4% stake in Twitter, and they tried to get rid of Dorsey then. It was really concerned that Dorsey was distracted because he was also the founder of another company, Square, which is a mobile payment system. And they also had some concerns that he had other interests uh, in cryptocurrencies that were distracting him from his job at Twitter. So they set up a committee of directors to evaluate the leadership last year. And apparently then they planned the successor. So Dorsey has sort of been staying in position only until this moment now that they've announced Parag will be taking over. Yeah, Parag being Parag Agrawal, the former chief technology officer of Twitter and Jack Dorsey's replacement. Christina, what do you make of this choice? Yeah, I think it's really interesting that they've gone with an insider who has been at the company for so long. They clearly don't want to bring in a flashy name from another company who might be bringing something external, but maybe not know the company very well. People I've spoken to have said that Agrawal is egoless, but he's very formidable, very brilliant, and really likes to get down to the core of an issue rather than trying to come up with a flashy fix. So he will spend a lot of time trying to understand the different teams and how they work and trying to understand the problem. Um, He's also been described as a little bit nerdy and not having the same sort of Silicon Valley silver tongue that perhaps Jack Dorsey has. But everybody I've spoken to has said that he's very impressive and that they are um, really happy with him becoming the new CEO. Christina Criddle is the FT's technology reporter. She's based in London. One of the biggest effects of the pandemic has been a huge expansion of state power. Governments have imposed lockdowns. They've propped up economies with public funds. But when it comes to medical solutions, they're almost completely dependent on private companies. And one company in particular, the FT's global pharmaceuticals correspondent, Hannah Kushler, has been writing about how Pfizer became so dominant. She joins me now. Hi, Hannah. Hello. So pre-pandemic, Pfizer's most famous drug was Viagra. We all know what that does. Now, Pfizer is behind the best-selling pharmaceutical product of all time. How did this happen? Yeah, one of the really great lines in this piece is I spoke to this U.S. official who said, it's not even their product. (laughs) And that is one of the um, interesting things about this story. The vaccine that's now known as the Pfizer shot almost everywhere in the world was actually made in the labs of BioNTech, their German partner, which is this pioneer in mRNA technology, which we know has been the real sort of supercharged um, this vaccine and, and made it the most successful in the world. So briefly, in in dollar terms, in financial terms, what has Pfizer's COVID vaccine meant for the company itself and for its position in the market? 
I mean, it's absolutely huge. So Pfizer is forecasting this year $36 billion in revenue from this vaccine. Now, before that, we used to call a blockbuster drug is a billion dollar drug, right? Um, some of the big mega blockbusters um, are drugs like Humira, um, which is an anti-inflammatory drug that can be used for a whole range of diseases. So is prescribed fairly widely. That comes in at 20 billion. So 36 is like out of nowhere, complete record breaker. And it's probably going to continue. Pfizer reckons that it'll have $29 billion in revenue next year. But it's probably going to be more than that because that was based on contracts it had already signed in mid-October. Now, of course, Pfizer isn't the only one out there with a vaccine. Moderna, Johnson & Johnson, AstraZeneca. Why was Pfizer so much more successful at distributing the vaccine than other pharmaceutical companies? So Pfizer was very big before the pandemic. It was the only major vaccine maker that we actually see or has a vaccine, a COVID shot on the market right now. Um, And so it had expertise in making vaccines. It also had a lot more financial firepower than a company like Moderna that had never had a product before. BioNTech, obviously its partner, also never had a product before. So it was able to really turbocharge the production um, because of that combination of you know, expertise and money. So Hannah, Pfizer is the most dominant player in the market now. Is there cause for concern? Well, I think it puts them in a very powerful position over things that companies don't normally have power over, over, you know, who gets doses that can potentially save millions of lives. And so you have a lot of people, unfortunately, in very you know, barely vaccinated areas of the world who are quite resentful of the idea that Pfizer has saved the world because they don't feel like they saved their parts of the world. We can have a debate and maybe we should about the extent to which that's the responsibility of governments and the extent to which that's the responsibility of of companies that are, are set up to make money. But I think that certainly a lot of the people I talked to felt that it was playing really hardball and that there was not much they could do when faced with such a global power in the form of a company. And then the other big point is, you know, one of the reasons why Pfizer will have more power in this situation, whether it wants it or not, is that there hasn't been good global cooperation between governments. They've not worked together to fund initiatives like COVAX early enough or to decide how you distribute vaccines more equitably. It has been a bit of a grab for each for their own. So now we have this new coronavirus variant that global health officials are worried about, uh, Omicron. Can we assume that Pfizer is well-placed to respond to it? Well, pretty well-placed because mRNA technology is the most adaptable technology out there. You take this gene sequence and you just change the gene sequence. Now, obviously, because of regulation, you have to do some more tests. You have to do probably a small bridging trial in people, although we haven't heard exactly what they're going to ask for. But that certainly means that they're likely to sort of double down on their dominance there. And Albert Bula said this week that he thinks that they would make almost 4 billion doses of a new version of a vaccine, which suggests to me that they're saying maybe we'll have like a really short switch over time, but we're pretty much going to meet the same targets as we were always going to, even if we switch to a new tweaked vaccine. Interesting. Hannah Kushler is the FT's global pharmaceutical correspondent. Thanks, Hannah. Thank you. Before we go, we have a quick correction to make. In yesterday's show, we overstated the importance of oil in Iran's economy. We removed that section for clarity. 
You can read more on all of these stories at FT.com. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news. Kevin Lings is the chief economist at Stanlib. Kevin, you spend your life, it seems, looking at interesting data. But the data that came out today on South Africa's unemployment level must have shocked even you. Hi, Alec. I think they are absolutely shocking, especially given that uh, go ahead of this data, our unemployment rate was already exceptionally high. And obviously, we were under pressure in terms of labor market. And now we've lost, I just can't believe this, we've lost another 660,000 jobs in one quarter. That's simply in three months, most of those jobs in the formal sector. And and yes, you can blame the looting and unrest in July, but it it's not enough to explain a loss of 660,000. That's telling me that businesses are broadly under pressure. They're trying to cut costs out of the business and they've got no choice. Where do they take costs from? They're cutting back on terms of employment. And there are very few entities in South Africa that are expanding or adding jobs. So we lost 660,000 jobs. That obviously pushes the unemployment rate up. Now, the unemployment rate at uh, around 34, 35%, I think that in itself is not really telling you what's happening because there's a huge number of people that are what we call discouraged. In other words, they lose their job and they simply stop looking for work. They're that discouraged. But once you stop looking for work, by the definition, you're no longer unemployed. So we know how many people that is. We can add that back. And when you add that back, South Africa's total unemployment rate jumps to 46%. Then if you look at certain categories, particularly young people in the youth category, the unemployment rate is 77%. It's hard to get your mind around just how bad that is. And then if you look at the category, I think, which is even more damaging, actually, is the category one age group above that. So now you're looking at people that go up to the age of 35, and there the unemployment rate is over 55%. So think about people that are in their 30s, a huge number of them don't have employment, possibly have never worked in the formal sector in their life, have lost their job with very little prospect of getting a job. How do those people think about building careers, starting families, owning houses, all of those things that go with employment? It, it's got to be very damaging in the system. And then if you break down the data according to provinces, Pretty much most of the provinces under pressure. There are a couple of exceptions like Western Cape, but on the whole, the numbers look dreadful. I can't really find any redeeming features. And I guess for me, the most damaging number overall is that if I look at where we were in employment before COVID, right, obviously the economy declined and now we're trying to recover. But our total employment is down 2.1 million relative to where we were just before COVID. And you can't brag about our employment before COVID. I would have described that as shockingly weak, and we've lost 2.1 million jobs in total. So now you think about government's programs of we're going to employ people, we're going to expand, we're going to invest. We've got to make up 2.1 million jobs before we back at where we were before COVID. Just, it just feels it feels a big mountain to climb. It is incredible. And if you take the numbers as a whole – how many people are in South Africa? And of those people, roughly how many are employable? In other words, in that category that you would call uh, looking for job, discouraged, undiscouraged, and, and people who are lucky enough to have a job. 
So if you look at the age group 15 to 64, so that becomes the people who could well be employed. In South Africa, below 15, you shouldn't be employing anybody. Over 64, we generally, obviously, people over 64 are working, thank goodness. But um, it, it, it's not counted as part of the total employable base. We assume that people at that age are retired. But that, that's 40 million people. So, so you could argue that we want to get close to that number. If you look at the number of people formally employed in this country, it's now dropped below 10 million. 10 million have a formal job. And the thing we keep stressing is that that's, that's an incredibly narrow consumer base. That's a narrow tax base. That's, it's hard to become an economic success story when you've only got 10 million people in a country our size that are actually in uh, formal employment. So that tells you social grants are going to have to continue and are going to continue to increase. It tells you the pressure on government to provide more social spending. That's going to remain high. The pressure on families and communities to provide for extended families, et cetera, that's going to remain high. The risk of looting and unrest, that's going to remain high. Until, until we start to make a dent in the unemployment rate, all of these problems are going to remain relevant. You also can't realistically talk about easing the, the income divide or the, or the uh, wealth divide, the so-called Gini coefficient or the level of inequality till you're creating jobs. The best way to deal with inequality is create employment. So accentuated in terms of our problems. And, and the, the sad thing is government knows what they need to do. Government has spoken about what needs to happen in terms of investment and deregulating business sector and getting fixed investment. But the ability to implement these changes is just not uh, effective enough. So the execution is poor, but apart from all of that, the policies also seem rather strange. If you have got 10 million out of 40 million potential employees, only 10 million have got formal jobs. The other 30 million have somehow got to be making a living, and perhaps of those 30 million, a big percentage of them would love to get any job, not minimum wage jobs, just some job, just get into the workforce. Isn't that when you see the, the, the policies, for instance, minimum wage, if you're a company and you have to pay a, a minimum amount of, uh, uh, of salary to somebody, you might employ two, and it's very difficult to get rid of them if they don't work out. You might think twice before doing so. Absolutely. So, yeah, so there's no doubt that the labor legislation in South Africa, the way it's draft, way it's um, written and the way it's if made effective does ultimately limit uh, a lot of things. It limits investment into sectors. It limits employment in particular sectors. I think it also especially limits startup businesses because we have industry-wide agreements, not just around minimum wages, but around other conditions. And so if you're a startup business wanting to enter an industry, you are obliged to comply with the industry-wide agreements. And those agreements might be fine for a big, well-established business, but they're difficult for you as a startup to deal with. So we in no way really encouraging small, medium businesses. And, and the truth is that big business is not about to rapidly expand employment. A lot of businesses try constantly to do, to do more out 
output with less people. It's about trying to be more efficient. We know from many countries that the way, the route to increased employment is startup business, medium business, small business that becomes medium business. So you've got to have a very active program to encourage new business to be formed or smaller businesses to expand. And one of the key things that helps those businesses is deregulation, whether that's labor market deregulation, whether it's got to do with how you uh, get licenses, whether it's got to do with the procurement of uh, water, whatever it is, um, those regulations are very onerous. So I would say that the policy needs to be looked at. The way in which we implement policy needs to be made way more effective. And quite frankly, government's got to find a way to get out of the way. Government is involved in way too much of this economy to, for it to be productive. And if they can find a way to step back and allow business to do what business does everywhere in the world, and it will create jobs. So we know what the answer is. We just can't implement. What about those who say that there is – a very large informal sector, in other words, the 30 million potential formal employees do do something. Isn't that sure. uh, maybe an ameliorating factor? So we, we surveyed, you know, this survey that we're talking about surveys every aspect of employment. It is serve, specifically surveys informal sector, but it surveys the agricultural sector or, or what you might call the subsistence agricultural sector. It surveys what we call private households, which would be domestic workers, etc. So all of those numbers are included. And in terms of the informal sector, there are 2.7 million people employed in informal activity. Now, 2.7 add some people that are working in private households. That's just over another 1 million people in subsistence agriculture, just less than another 1 million. That brings you nowhere near to the numbers that um, you need to make a real impact in terms of employment. And the hurdle rate to be regarded as employment is literally you've got to work a couple of hours a week. It's not as if we are, we've got this onerous requirement that you have to be employed every single day to be counted as employment. That's not true. You work one day a week, you count it as employed. So, so people who are getting jobs piecemeal or getting jobs from, from one day and then next week they have another job, those people are included and are included as being employed, yet we still have this huge unemployment rate. I'm Joshua Roberts of BizNews, and with me to discuss Impala Platinum's latest buyout offer of Royal Buffer King Platinum is ABAX Investment co-founder Anthony Sedgwick. Anthony, I guess it's nice to focus on something else other than COVID at this point. It's all getting a bit long in the tooth. It's been an interesting period for the mining sector in the last few months. Lots of M&A and corporate action. We'll get to this specific transaction in a second, but what's your general take on all the M&A activity happening in the mining sector at the moment? Um, Justin, it's a good question. It's something we actually worry about as, as fund managers when things get too frothy and there's too much capital sloshing around and balance sheets are in too healthy. Miners typically are very tempted to start to spend money very quickly and, and often don't, uh, you know, have too great a concern as to, you know, what shareholders opinion on the matter is. So one of the things we felt uh, has been really, really pleasing about the, you know, the recent cycle that we've been in is where we've seen the extent to which mining 
firms have repaired balance sheets and paid back debt, there hasn't actually been that much activity. If you look at the big houses, Anglos and BHP, as very good examples, they've been exceptionally better custodians of shareholder uh, balance sheets um, over the last four or five years. And and there hasn't been, you know, a, a, a mad and embarrassing scramble for assets. Clearly, there's a temptation to do so when your balance sheet looks a lot better. And obviously, these businesses are looking to be, you know, in business in the long term and, and mining by nature uh, as an extractive industry requires constant reinvestment to secure additional uh, access to resor- reserves and answers. Um, but we feel largely, um, you know, the South African public equi- in the South African public equity spaces, mining firms have been uh, have been very disciplined in their use and allocation of capital uh, over the last year or two, despite arguably a pretty elevated uh, commodity prices across a lot of the complex. Impala has made another offer for Royal Buffer King. Of what I understand, they're definitely going to buy out at least 25% of the company, stakes held predominantly from large asset managers, which includes ABAX Investments. What are Impala's plans for the rest of the shareholding of Royal Buffer King? Uh, well, we've actually traded, so the transaction is effective today. So they own just under, according to the public statements, just under 25% of the company. Uh, we know Northern uh, bought uh, a stake from uh, the largest shareholder a couple of weeks ago, uh, Royal Buffer King Holdings. Um, you know, it, it for us, it highlights uh, very clearly the unique uh, opportunity that the firm offers really just as uh, two distinct mining properties uh, on the on the western limb uh, of the Bushveld complex. Um, very, very attractive asset, obviously, considering the depth of the mine and the fact that, you know, it's only with one of them is only the one part of the business, Staledrift, has only recently come, you know, fully, it's coming fully on stream. Um, so uh, they are, I understand, are making a general offer and they'll buy, you know, any other shares that other shareholders are prepared to tender. Um, in terms of the re- regulation, they were only allowed to approach a very limited number of shareholders. Uh, it seems all of the shareholders that they approached uh, have agreed to the terms that were proposed, including ourselves. And um, it gives them, you know, a reasonably established position. Um, I think we'll have to see now how many other shareholders uh, tender their shares and uh, and are prepared to accept um, the terms as currently proposed. But you know, I I think you know ideally they'd like to get all the available shares. Um, invariably, you're not going to get get them all. Um, but uh, I imagine their target is to get north of fifty percent. But they haven't they didn't disclose that to us, and they haven't said anything publicly, as far as I'm aware, around um, immediate ambitions. Northern bought a third of the company from Royal Bufferking Holdings for 180 rand per share. This deal being done at 150 rand per share. Surely it doesn't make sense for Northam and Paul Dunn to accept this offer. No, they're very unlikely. I don't think that's <laughs> that'll happen. And it's a part cash, part share deal with Impala, meaning that you guys would have acquired some Impala Platinum shares. Are you already shareholders in Impala, and do you plan on holding these shares that come part of the deal? 
Yes, we are, and and we are likely to continue to 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 earn these additional shares. Um, you know, this is an interesting thing. We are also Northern shareholders, uh, as well as RBP shareholders, and coincidentally, we also earn some Amplat shares. So, um, and I think you will find many South African institutions will um, may uh, or are likely to have a similarly broad level of interest. So it's it's not. That we're nailing all of our colours to one, you know, one particular mast uh, in the form of back, you know, putting all our money on on any one of the horses, and and we will often, um, you know, adjust our proportional weightings uh, between the uh, the companies in the sector. Um, I haven't even mentioned Sabanya Stillwater, which is a you know a, a unique uh, combination of assets itself, um, which we also have a few shares in. In terms of synergies, does this takeover make more sense for Northern and or Impala, talking geographies, etc.? Yeah, uh, uh, we would say Impala, um, but we also acknowledge that um, Northern operationally are very competent and experienced miners, and uh, and we think both parties can actually uh, you know add value to to how that re- resource base is being managed and extracted. Um, and, and it's, you know, in the interest, you know, if I think of, you know, Royal Baffer King, uh, Platinum, you know, though that those two mines, Dale Drift and BRPM, I think both can be better managed with the combined, uh, flex, operational flexibility and management, uh, experience that, uh, Impala and, and Northern, uh, will be able to, uh, to contribute. Uh, in addition to the very competent management team that are there already. Do you expect more consolidation in the industry and do you think consolidation benefits the remaining companies? Um, are you referring, when you say industry, you're talking about the platinum industry specifically? Correct. Um, it's very consolidated, you know, already. Um, there may be, um, I, I, this has clearly been the, the obvious, you know, asset. There's probably a few things in the unlisted space, um, as well. Um, this has been the obvious one though that we've, we've all been waiting for. How does business empower our nation? By bringing produce to our tables, giving us technology that connects us, hospitals that care for us, and the tools that shape our cities. And by backing the next generation of business owners. That's why South Africa banks on business, business banks on us. Standard Bank, it can be. Standard Bank is an authorized financial services and registered credit provider. T's and C's apply. It's quite a debate going on at the moment about whether or not vaccinations should be mandatory. Uh, Throwing his weight behind the mandatory vaccine idea is Adrian Gore, the chief executive of Discovery. And today, Discovery held a webinar where Gore and his top team put forward the case for mandatory vaccines. They speak from a position of some insight, given that... Discovery introduced mandatory vaccines within its own company. And by doing so, they could now provide information to others in the business community and to make the argument 
as they have done, and very forcefully so, that mandatory vaccines will save lives. Gore reckons somewhere between 30 to 40,000 lives will be saved if everybody in South Africa, or certainly those who work in the formal sector, are forced to have a vaccine. Of course, there's all kinds of other issues that come into it, not least the legal issue. However, Discovery also says that they've investigated that and they believe that there is a legal case for enforcing mandatory vaccines. Let's join Adrian Gore at today's webinar. On the 2nd of September, we announced a a mandatory vaccination policy for our staff, um, and we we rolled it out since then. Um, I think the impetus behind today's update is really, obviously, we're now in the face of the fourth wave. Uh, Firstly, secondly, the Omicron variant uh, creates maybe a different dynamic, and that's important. Uh, And then thirdly, the narrative around uh, mandatory vaccination policy is now obviously heating up quite substantially, and we felt it may be worthwhile and useful uh, to share some of our learnings and experience we've had. There's no hubris here whatsoever. These are complicated processes, but we felt it may be of use uh, just to share the the experience uh, we we have gone through. Um, It may be worthwhile just making the point up front that uh, a lengthy process took place for us to get to the policy. Um, Our best view, uh, looking at all the data and all the other uh, uh, things coming through at the time, was that an environment is complex with misinformation and different views and uh, very urgent requirements, you know, incentives and those just don't work. You need a regulatory uh, lever and, and hence the, the, the approach of, of a mandate. And we took that, that decision, I think, uh, uh, very, very carefully. Having said that, um, just to start with the end in mind, I think the, the policies worked remarkably well. We are now uh, close to 95% vaccinated as a, as a staff base. Um, and we expect as we go through the process now, of getting to the last uh, couple percentage and probably will end, end around 97%, we estimate. And I think we've had a very, very good response from our, our people, our 10,000 or so people um, across across the country. So that, that is kind of starting with the end in mind. Point, I wanted to just give you, uh, a lot of this you probably know, but just the impetus behind our decision was firstly, we want to avoid deaths. Uh, this is, of course, not an academic debate. The number of people vaccinated is fundamental to the number of deaths that we think will occur, specifically going into the fourth wave, having the history of the terrible tragedy uh, of the first three waves. And, uh, and I'm modeling from the, the chart, this is the difference between you know high levels of vaccination and low levels of vaccination, really potentially saving 30 or 40,000 people from death if we manage to achieve as a country high levels of vaccination. So the first issue, of course, was the, the, the obsession to save lives. And fundamentally, uh, I think our view is, could we get our staff vaccinated before the fourth wave hit? I mean, that's really the issue. Uh, uh, the second point is the data we have we have been pretty clear is pretty unequivocal. There are many many studies on this, but I think importantly we haven't just relied on other studies. Our studies that we've published uh, just a few weeks back, uh, a massive study on 1.7 million unique data points, show that vaccinated people uh, have nearly a 95% reduction uh, in chance of death uh, once infected versus non-vaccinated, uh, and a very similar kind of. Uh, process between, uh, you know, getting infected, being admitted and dying. So the data is unequivocal. The third point is that um, it's a public issue. It's not a private uh, issue necessarily. Uh, we know with with uh, viruses that, that uh, people that are vaccinated slow the spread uh, of transmission. They have a lower risk of being infected. Uh, they have a lower viral load and therefore a lower risk of transmission, and the two together are multiplicative, and you get a, you get a slower a slower spread of the virus in the community. The other point I think very important is that populations that are vaccinated have lower chance of variants uh, coming about. 
So these are important issues from a public health perspective, and I think that was our third point. And then the fourth point, point you know well as well, is that um, credit to, I think, business and, and government is that the actual vaccine rollout proved to be very potentially very effective, slightly late, but effective. We've got to a point where we have the capacity to to vaccinate probably 400,000 people a day or more if needed. There's plenty of stock available at this stage. Uh, and, the, and the problem that we have is one of hesitancy, not of capacity, which is not what we predicted at the start uh, of, of last year as, as the pandemic struck. As you know, I think just over 40% uh, of the adult population is vaccinated. So we are a long way short of where we should be, and therefore, uh, you know, the need to think about ways to remedy uh, and increase vaccination rates. And then I think just follows from that, that our view is if we could get our, our, our staff base vaccinated uh, in time for the fourth wave, these points would, would all add together to something we felt was coherent uh, and appropriate, and hopefully it would be an example for others uh, to see how this went. And given our role, obviously, in society, where discovery is, we felt this was an important step to take. So it seemed pretty clear um, to us at the time, and I think uh, uh, developments since then have have increased, uh, we think, the importance of the mandate. I mean, obviously, we're in a different place now, and I think a more important place, we have a, we have a, we have a variant in Omicron that is unknown. Uh, what it will do, we're, we're trying to learn quickly. I think credit to our scientists who've done an amazing job at, at, at what they've managed to achieve. But maybe, Ron, just give us context from our side as to where we stand now uh, in our view of Omicron. During the presentation, Gore also passed the ball across to his colleagues, including the Chief Commercial Officer, Ron Whelan. Here's his insights on Omicron, which is the new variant of COVID-19 that was uncovered by South African scientists but appears to be already pretty endemic all over the world. The issue of Omicron is that it is far more easily transmissible than the previous variant which brought us the third wave. Obviously very concerning the Omicron developments over the last week or so. Um, I think there are a few important uh, points to highlight on this. I think you're all well aware that Omicron is now uh, a version of the SARS-CoV-2 virus that has uh, an additional 50-odd mutations, uh, 32 of those mutations on the spike protein. And that's really important because the mutations on the spike protein impact the uh, potentially impact the infectivity of the, the virus and the transmissibility of the, the virus. So it's early stages on the lab analysis of the Omicron. We're going to need to do work on the clinical impact of uh, Omicron over the next uh, yeah, few days, as you well know. I think uh, three questions to, to answer. Firstly, will Omicron be more infectious? Secondly, will Omicron be more um, uh, result in more severe disease? And thirdly, will Omicron have uh, some impact on vaccine effectiveness? We don't conclusively know the answer to any of those questions at this stage of the game. Uh, we are analyzing our discovery data as we speak. Um, what we, you know, The initial uh, insights we're seeing from our discovery data is we are seeing a sharp increase in, in infection levels um, that may or may not be related to Omicron. We do see a clustered outbreak across uh, Shwani in particular. That's uh, confirmed by the NICD. We are seeing an early uptick in admissions, you know, particularly across uh, uh, Shwani, and in particularly in young, younger populations below the, below the age of uh, age of 30. Also inconclusive whether that's you know, as a result of Omicron uh, because in parallel with the COVID, out- COVID outbreak, we're seeing uh, an outbreak in influenza A. Um, so we've got a com- you know, quite a complex uh, viral situation uh, playing out at the, the moment.
I think we're cautiously optimistic that the vaccines will continue to re- remain effective. They certainly would not drop down to zero uh, you know, effect- uh, effectiveness. Vaccines elicit both an antibody response as well as a, uh, a cellular response. Um, and you know, while we might see some reduction in the antibody um, effect, it's likely that we'll have some preserved uh, T cell and cellular response, which will retain uh, the effectiveness of the vaccine. You know, so we're hopeful that uh, the effectiveness is retained to some extent for both from an, an infectiousness, an infectivity perspective, but uh, more importantly from a severe disease and death perspective. Um, so early stages, we'll watch the data closely on a global basis, and we'll obviously uh, we're doing extensive work on uh, our discovery database at the moment as well. I guess. It's pretty clear that that uh, we'll learn more, but I think the best news is that vaccinations uh, remain crucial uh, and possibly more so going forward. Uh, the narrative certainly with the with Omicron uh, has changed things somewhat with the president making uh, announcing a task team around exploring ma- uh, mandated vaccinations, uh, labor coming out in support uh, of vaccination in public place and business calling for much sterner measures around vaccine mandates. So the, so certainly the environment has changed um, quite, quite dramatically um, in that regard. For great wines at the right price, delivered direct to your door anywhere in the country, look no further than the BizNews Wine Shop. Go directly to www.biznewsshop.com for a quick, easy solution to curated wines with the BizNews community front of mind. I'm Joshua Roberts of BizNews, and with me is banking analyst Koki Koyman. Over the next few weeks, we're going to get a number of South Africa's best fund managers to share their best stock picks for 2022. Starting today with banking oracle Koki Koyman, who focuses specifically on the financial services industry. Koki, before we get into your pick and the reasons why, etc., what are your general remarks on the performance of international and local financial services companies in 2021? Did financials as a sector under or overperform relative to the broad indices this year, and why? Yeah, so in in um, in both cases, uh, on both South Africa and uh, and overseas, financials perform very very well. And I think I haven't checked after this week, but I think it outperformed uh, global indices. Um, in fact, quite strongly, I'd, I'd, I'd guess. Um, and and the main reason is really uh, twofold. Number one, um, that they had a huge sell-off at the beginning of of 2020. And the recovery continued. Uh, but the most important thing is really that uh, as economic growth came back, your inflationary pressures came back and the prospect of high interest rates increased. And high interest rates is very good for your financial sector. So they re-rated. Uh, maybe one other thing that played a role as well, and it's going to be important going forward as well, in that in the early phases, the first two quarters of 2020, or the first, the second and third quarter, the banks and insurers were forced by the new accounting regulations post-2008 to dramatically increase provisions, and they were not allowed to either buy back shares or pay dividends. Okay, that's a generalization. In some cases, they were paying dividends, but at a low level. So they entered to 21 
with very high capital levels internationally, South Africa, everywhere. Um, and then as, as the recovery progressed, they were able to um, start using those reserves, which were unnecessary in the end, to start buying back shares and paying dividends. So the, the bank sector globally is still on fairly good high dividend, uh, good dividend yields, and they're still being able to buy back shares quite a lot. And I think that led to a lot of the re-rating. Corky, onto your pick. I've limited you to strictly South African banks. So I understand your investment universe isn't too big, but onto your pick and just the high-level reasons why. Yeah. So firstly, I think what we've got to bear in mind that um, it's a hell of a tough choice at the moment. Um, all the banks in South Africa are cheap. Uh, I mean, when, when, when I, for, for preparing for this, I looked again, again at the upsides and it's very difficult. You've got you've got EPSA, NetBank trading at, at low valuations, very low valuations. Um, but due to the uncertainty uh, that we're currently facing again with, with Omicron, uh, the virus coming through, um, yeah, and, and all kinds of uncertainty in terms of growth. Uh, do we have, do we go into further lockdowns again? Do we, uh, yeah, does the economy contract? Um, then it's always better in a time of uncertainty to be with, with your players that have a proven track, track record of, of just being on the front foot. And, and so those would be in South Africa, first brand and Capitec. Uh, my my pick for for in this circumstances is then Capitec, simply for uh, well three four reasons. Number one is it's obviously a brilliant bank, uh, great management, really done well, continuing to grow market share. Uh, the the especially on uh, the digital side, uh, doing very well, um, but also very well capitalized, over reserved. And fee income has become an increasing part. In fact, it's fee income is now bigger than interest income. Um, and then what I do like about Capitec as well, in the stuff environment, they're still the bank that have still got the most potential to continue taking market share. So you know, in an environment where loan growth is, is going to be tougher, uh, if we go into a, a harsher lockdown later potentially, then Capitec can still grow market share. It still is only 2% of the bank sector. So, yeah, and valuation is 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 not cheap, um, but it is justified by the growth potential. Koki, it's generally spoken, even amongst casual conversation, that South Africa's banking system is one of the best in the world. You've traveled all over, over the world. You understand financial services industries um, across the globe, as well as analyze uh, banks locally and globally, would you say this is largely true? Yes, I, I'd, yeah, I don't know if it's the red wine we drink or if it's just uh, <laughs> most emerging markets are tough environments and very volatile, unpredictable currency swings. And we in South Africa have got you know, commodity prices playing a big role. So I think that has made our management a lot more focused on, on generating good return on capital. I think also, despite what a lot of people think, there's significant competition uh, at many levels between the banks. And so uh, that makes them, that makes them, uh, as force them to shop and they, they, uh, 
uh, pencils the whole time. But I think maybe one other thing. Um, we made a lot of mistakes in the 80s trying to grow offshore and, and, and the growth was you know, trying to buy things in, in England and you know, R&B went into Australia and, and learned from those mistakes. And since then, most of the growth offshore has more been in Africa where we've got an, a, a skills advantage. So the allocation of capital has been very good of South African banks, much better than, than banks offshore who often tend to do stupid acquisitions, stupid growth uh, or silly. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so our bank managements have really done well through all their volatility. First round up, uh, trading update today, Standard Bank last week. We're seeing the bank's top line reverting back to pre-COVID levels. We're also starting to enter a higher interest rate environment. Are these all tailwinds for the financial services industry going into 2022? Yeah, so the results and, and, and the other banks will show the same. Uh, the results show what we were saying during the year, that we will see gra- uh, retail growth is picking up. Corporate growth, not so much yet um, because of the uncertainty, but generally uh, better fee income, better activity. There's been huge emphasis globally on cost containment. Um, and and then obviously the reserves we spoke about, uh, that they've got excess reserves, can, can still release reserves. So, But now obviously with the Omicron um, variant, that's going to make it very tough. If it proves that the vaccination vaccinations that we've got and the high, relatively high level of vaccination compared to last year helps us and we don't go into severe lockdown, then I think growth will continue, especially in that scenario if overseas countries reverse the travel bans again, because that's, that's very important for our country. Um, so then you'll see stronger growth. You'll see inflation coming through. Uh, by the way, just today, I think Germany and Spain recorded highest inflation rates since 1992. So, yeah, you can see inflation is coming through. So if this virus isn't as deadly, uh, it's virulent but not deadly as the previous ones and the vaccination rates help, growth continues, you're going to see further inflation, higher interest rates, then the bank sector will do well. If, however, yeah, we're first going to a lockdown and all of that is postponed for, for maybe, who knows, six months, 12 months. But they're still cheap. I mean, APSA, below price to book of one, Net Bank, below price to book of one, Standard Bank, 1.1. So they've sold off on, on the fears on, on last week. I can't see, you know, much more downside. So it's a safe option. You, you're going to get optionality with higher interest rates. And, and say if you're going to get a good dividend yield in any case if, if we go into a, a lockdown again. Have you visited the Biz News Wine Shop yet? If not, go shopping immediately at www.biznewsshop.com for a selection of great wines at just the right price. Delivered straight to your door. T's and C's apply. Well, thanks for being with us today. and We look forward to being back in your company tomorrow. Same time, same place uh, from the Biz News team. Until then, cheerio. 
You've been listening to the Power Hour brought to you by the team at Biz News.